Yeah, the kids are dismissed. So, as I've been saying to you, we were in the Psalms for 20 weeks, um, almost half a year, just looking at the Psalms, and you tell me, what are the Psalms? We've been talking about it uh, the last couple of weeks. The reason we're actually in the Gospels listening to Jesus these last three to four weeks of the year is because we spent 20 weeks looking at Him in the Psalms. And so when you look at Jesus in the Psalms, if you're a Christian, you get freed up, right? You, you, you're reminded just how awesome He is. And just how free you are if you belong to Him. You don't have to conform to the ways of the world. You don't have to live like the world. You don't have to live in that little bitty box the world tries to squeeze you into. You are a disciple of the living God. You have license to be radical in the world. So, we looked at Christ for 20 weeks, and I got pretty jazzed, as I always do. Hopefully, you, some of you got jazzed. Hopefully, some of you are freed up. You're freed up to speak the name of Christ in your family and at your work and at the university. You're freed up because you know He reigns. He says He reigns. The earth trembles. The mountains melt like wax. He's God. Nobody else is. It's the perfect time to go to the Gospels and listen to Jesus speak about what it really is. We've been hearing His words. They're radical. They are radical words. They are extreme words. <laughs> they are extreme words. As I've said to you, Jesus is the most extreme person, the most radical person to ever walk the planet. And of course, He's going to call His people to walk with Him. What's the most oft uh, command of Jesus in the Gospels? We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. What? Follow Me! So I'm going to just begin by asking you. Most of you probably in here call yourself a Christian. That's good. If you're not a Christian, that's fine. I'm glad you're here. But I'm going to ask you, are you following Christ? Or is He something you do when, it's, when you need a religious shot in the arm? When you just need to offload some guilt? When you just, you're trying to get in touch with the health, wealth, and prosperity God who, who will go to work for you? Or, have you given yourself away? This is what Jesus keeps saying as we look at these texts. The red words, the Gospels according to Jesus, He's actually calling men and women, give yourself away to Me. I'm God. I'm your Creator. Give yourself away to me. You heard me read the text. We're in Matthew 10. I hope, hope you'll have a Bible open or an electronic device so you can follow along with me. You saw there, Jesus said, um, there in verse 18, no one is good except God. Well, what does that, where does that leave you and me? If no one is good but God, where does that leave you and me? 
Come on. I know some of you guys. We're not good. You're not good. You've never been good. You will never be good. On your own, never. We'll talk more about that. So by default, we're bad. <laughs> we are bad. Paul writes it in Romans 3.23, For we have all sinned, and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. I looked up the word bad uh, in the dictionary, and that's actually what it says. Not achieving an adequate standard. And of course, it goes on to say being evil, wicked, or disobedient. So you and I, this is what the Bible tells us about ourselves. We are guilty of not achieving an adequate standard. Paul says you've fallen short of the glory of God. Your life is not glorifying God as it ought, is what the Apostle Paul is Saying, and we talked about this maybe what maybe a month now, five weeks, six weeks ago, when we were in Psalm 53. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Three times in the Bible, at least, there is none who does good. He's talking about humankind. There's not even one. You know, it's not that simply that we just do bad things. The Bible says we are bad to the core. Okay? That's what the Bible talks about. That's what the Bible talks about. Sadly, as you know, most of the world pays little heed to what God has to say. For the most part, men think they're okay. I'm, I'm pretty good. And this, we've been making this point the last three weeks. I'm pretty good relative to that person. Isn't that, isn't that how the, the equation works? We compare ourselves with some other human being, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm pretty good compared to them. That's pretty much the standard that we set. And if we happen to do something bad, it's really not our fault. We're a victim. It, it really is... <clears throat> It's universal in, in humankind. We'll not take responsibility for our own sin. Right? It's all through Scripture. It's all through history. And, uh, yeah. If I sin, it's, it's the fault of my environment or my parents or my boss or my friends. Or it's, we don't take responsibility. We don't tend to take responsibility. So mankind likes to create religious systems so he'll feel better about himself. This is what religion is. This is what all world religions are, right? And what pseudo-Christianity is. Well, I'll do some religion to make myself feel better about myself. To assuage my conscience, right? So I can sleep at night. This is what religion is all about. And you know, I like to do religion too because people see me do religion and they think I'm a good person. I think I'm a good person. They think I'm a good person. So it's a win-win for me. I love what 17th century theologian Matthew Mead says. This is beautiful. Listen to this. No man was ever kept out of heaven for his confessed badness. Okay? Any man who owns his badness, right, and he confesses it to God, comes to, to God through Jesus Christ, right? This is what he's saying. 
No man is kept out of heaven for, con for his confessed bad badness, though many are kept out because of their supposed goodness. You got it? It's what we're talking about these last three or four weeks. It's what we see in this young man's life who runs up to Jesus. He thinks he's got it all together. And God incarnate is going to blow him up, right? <laughs> he's going to blow him up. This guy is a religious giant. He's like the Apostle Paul. Paul was at the top of the food chain. But when he met Jesus, he found out that his religion was no good. So last week we saw in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Many, what? What did he say? Many who what? Who say, Lord, Lord to me, those, many of those will what? I will say to them, I don't know you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Many, the Bible is clear, many who think they're good, they think they're Christians, but they are not. They're caught up in a, a religious kind of Christianity, not in the, the relational kind of Christianity, which is the only kind that matters according to the Bible. So tonight in Mark 10, we see uh, what appears to be someone eager to become a Christian, a follower of Christ. I'll use the term Christian, although the term wasn't in vogue at this time. But he seems eager. He wants to follow Jesus. He seems to be a guy, he understands that, that he's bad and, and he needs a Savior, right? Instead, we discover that he's merely a religious man looking for someone else to affirm him. You know, it's one reason our church, I think, has always been small. Um... I don't give people false hope. I think that's the uh, worst thing. It's malpractice. For me to pat you on the head and say, well, I think you're perfect, man. You're good to go. Because I don't ever know that about you. I can't see your heart. I don't know that. You know, I can look at your life and you can say, Jim, this is, this is my life. This is what I do. This is how I live. This is how I speak. This is how I surf the Internet. Whatever. This is how I honor my spouse. This is how I raise my kids. This is how I relate to my job, this, uh, to my boss. This is how I relate to my subordinates. You know, I can look at those things and say, well, you're giving all the evidence that you are a Christian. But I can't really know. They all thought Judas was. The other 11 guys knew Judas was a, a follower of Christ. They knew he was. He wasn't. My point is, this is how Jesus evangelizes. <laughs> All you have to do is read the Gospels. It's how He evangelizes. He doesn't say pray the prayer and, you know, let one of my uh, colleagues baptize you and you're good. He never says that. He never says that. He always goes right to the heart. He always goes right to the heart. That's what he's doing in our text tonight. So we've seen that the red words are radical. They are extreme. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we heard him say that we need to love him supremely, more than life, more than family, more than stuff. The Lord tells us to, that we need to count the cost of going with Jesus. You know, modern evangelical uh, gospel presentation is that, well, it doesn't cost anything. I just 
kind of, you know, I go and I, maybe I have to pray a prayer, maybe I have to get wet, but then I just do kind of what I want and, and everything's good. <laughs> if, we, if we're paying any attention at all, these last, this is the third week of the series, if we're paying any attention at all, this is not how the Son of God talked. It's not how He talked. Jesus said it's a narrow way. He said there are few who find it. And you must strive to enter into the kingdom. He says the true Christian will bear good fruit. They'll be in relationship with me. He said the true Christian will be building upon my words. As we talked about last week, the true Christian will, not perfectly, but we are acting on the Word of God. We don't just hear it and ignore it. We hear it. We pray about it. We struggle with it. And then we seek to incarnate. Incarnate it. This is what God expects from His people. So I hope you have your Bibles open. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And as He was setting out on a journey, a man ran to Him and knelt before Him and began asking Him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? If you go to the Matthew account, this isn't three Gospels. It's in Matthew, Luke, and Mark here. If you go to the Matthew account, actually the text says, Behold! Which is uh, the, the street equivalent of that day of, Wow! Wow! Look what this guy does! Look what this, this guy does! He is a ruler. Luke tells us that he is a ruler. No doubt in the local synagogue. Verse 22 of our text tells us that he is rich, so he's a big shot religious guy. Alright, you got the picture? This is a big shot. If you lived in this community, you would know him. You would know he's a big shot. You would know he's known uh, as a religious man. He would be held in high esteem in the community. So that's where we are. And he does something that Middle Eastern men, mature Middle Eastern men, particularly of some rank, never do. He runs up to Christ. This is very undignified. They they never did this. And he kneels. Dignified men never did this in public. So this is quite an incredible display. He's a hot prospect, right? How can you not get this guy in the water? Right? How can you not get him to make some profession of faith and get him baptized by the time the week is out? This is what you're average modern preacher or pastor would do. Right? Well, let's just pray the magic prayer and uh, we'll get you in the, in the water this next Sunday and you're good to go. Jesus never talks like this. That's the only problem I have with that. Jesus doesn't actually talk like this. He never talks like this. He actually goes to the heart of the young man and we're going to see it in the text, but He says, do you love me? That's what it's always about. It's always about that. Do you love me? Do you love me? That's really, ultimately, what it's always about. So, we've seen the last three weeks, either we don't know how to evangelize or Jesus Christ doesn't know how to evangelize. And I acknowledge Jesus Christ can see the heart, so He's way ahead of us. (laughs) But I think the way we evangelize has devolved to such a degree 
that it's almost like, yeah, magic. Magic prayer, magic ordinance, you're in. It's kind of like voodoo or something, you know? Jesus does not give him the dumbed-down gospel. He loves him too much. And that's the deal, you know? (laughs) I get it, I get it. People say, Jim, you preach too hard sometimes, you know? I get that. But why do I do it? Because I like having 25 people in the church? No. Because I love the 25 people who are here. And so I'm always going to push you to that which is better for you, which is always God. I'm always going to push you toward Him. Not toward me. Not even toward the church. Toward Christ Jesus. As I pray that you would love Him more when you leave than you love then you loved Him when you walked in the door. So, I want you to try to listen and hear the major aspects of the Gospel that Jesus puts in front of this man. We're going to go through the text, and I want you to try to hear what these elements are. Verse 18, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. So what is Jesus saying to him? He's saying, Do you know who I am? Do you know? Do you know that I am I am? Do you know that about me? Do you know that I'm God? Is that what you're saying? That's part of what Jesus is saying. The other thing He's saying is, if that's not true, if you don't know that I'm God, then you shouldn't call me good. No man is good! No man is good. And he's going to show this young man, although he's a big shot religious guy, he's not good. Jesus is going to burst his bubble. Don't you love it when Jesus bursts your bubble? Don't you love it? I love it. I love it. Then I know I'm moving on in sanctification, right? It's not Jimmy living in his own little world. God is dragging me out of that sad little display, and He's pulling me into a God-sized life of walking with the Lord. Biblically speaking, good is an absolute term. Good means God alone. Right? It's an absolute term. There are no degrees. We talked about it again four, five, six weeks ago as we looked at Psalm 53. Now, from a human perspective, there are relative degrees, right? You're, you're, you're not as bad as you could be. You're not as bad as one of the criminals in, in, in prison. Um, so, there are relative degrees of goodness, but none of this means anything to God. This is what this man believes, that he thinks his religious goodness is impressing God. I've told you a hundred times, God's not impressed with any man's religion, even in the name of Jesus Christ. It has to be relational. It has to be real. It has to be in the heart. It has to be relational. It's what we see repeatedly on the pages of Scripture. You guys remember Isaiah 40, pardon me, Isaiah 64, 6. Remember what the prophet says, all your righteous deeds are like... I know some of you can finish that. All your righteous deeds are like what? Bertha's always my go-to girl. Filthy rags. And we're all adults in here. The literal translation is minstrel rags. Okay? So, 
That's what mankind's righteousness is to God. So Jesus, Jesus is pressing the point home to this eager, young seeker. Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus says... Okay, you know the law. And I'm going to ask you, when was the last time you heard anybody use the law to evangelize? What good is the law in evangelism? Someone tell me. What good is the law? It crushes us. (laughs) We can't... It crushes every last ounce of pretense in us. If you understand the law, there's the letter and there's the Spirit. We can't keep the law. Jesus puts it lovingly. He puts it in front of the man. Right? Now, this man thinks, I've been doing this. In fact, he says that he has been keeping the law. Jesus basically brings up the last half of the Ten Commandments. Right? The, the commandments that are in relation to human uh, interaction. And what does this guy say? Verse 20. He said to him, Teacher, I've done all of that. Right? Okay? I've done all of that. I'm a great law keeper. Ask anybody. They'll tell you I'm a good law keeper. His world's about to blow up. God's about to blow up His world. He doesn't have a clue about the spirit of the law. He's saying, I've never actually killed. I've never actually committed adultery. I've never actually stolen anything. But you guys are familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say? Well, if you hate somebody, what? You are a murderer. If you lust for someone, what? You are an adulterer. There is the letter. This man could do the letter. But there is the Spirit. This man is guilty, no doubt, of sin on his way to meet Jesus. No doubt he had an impure thought on his way to meet the rabbi. So Jesus takes him deep into the law. It's about the heart. Man, it's not just about external performance. It's about what's going on in here. Right? What's going on in here? That's what Jesus is talking about. It's like most people you meet, they think they're pretty good. I'm pretty good. I think we talked about it last week. You, you, you meet your average person on the street, you ask them if they're good, they'll say, yeah, I'm pretty good. No! Love them enough and say, no, you're not! You're not good at all! This is what God says! You're not good at all! You, you need a Savior, man! You need one! Just like me! We all need a Savior. We talked about it last week. I think we touched on it. Matthew 23, where Jesus blasted the Pharisees. These religious men, probably the most religious men who ever walked. They had most of the Scriptures memorized. I mean, they were, these men were, were amazing in their religion. But, but Christ Jesus blasted them. He called them sons of hell. He said, even so you too outwardly appear righteous, He says, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
It's what Jesus is challenging in this young man. It's not simply about outward performance with God. It's never been that. It has never been that. Jesus says hate is murder and lust is adultery. You guys know if you've been around very long, I say it a lot. Religion is outside in. Christianity is inside out. It's what Jesus is calling for in this young man's life. Verse 21, and looking at the young man, Jesus felt a love for him and said uh, to him, one thing you lack, go and sell your, uh, all that you possess and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. We, we hit this, uh, was it last week? or was, I think it was the week before now about selling all that you have. Is Jesus calling people to poverty? You have to be, you have to be impoverished to, to be a Christian? Is that what Jesus is saying? No. Jesus is saying, and of course He sees this young man's heart. It's particularly why He's saying it to him. What's in this young man's heart? What do we already know? Why could he not go with Jesus? What did, it, what did the text tell us? We've already looked at it. We read it, we read it earlier. What, what was it? He was grieved because he owned much property. What does this tell us? What does it tell us? He loved his stuff. He He couldn't let go of his stuff. He loved his stuff more than God. Christianity is so simple, beloved. It's so simple. I know denominations, and I know it's it's all so complex, and there's so much dogma, and there's so much garbage and it's really simple do you love Christ Jesus preeminently two weeks ago preeminently supremely is that how it is with you and Jesus Christ so Jesus is loving this man he's showing this man his heart he's showing this man the idol in his heart this man is probably unconscious of this idol. It's his idol. His money is his idol. God incarnate is standing in front of him and he's saying, you can go with me. And the guy's grieved because he owns much property. This guy says, I've kept the law. Well, we've been talking a lot about this too. It keeps coming up. What what is the summation of the law? That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment, uh, the second greatest commandment is like unto it that you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is about to blow this guy up. He says, This is what you lack. Sell what you possess. Kill the idol. This is what he's saying. Kill the idol. Kill the idol. And give it away. Get, get rid of your idol. Then you're in a position to go with me, right? It's what, it's what the Lord Jesus is saying. You say you keep the law. He says, well, keep it supremely. Give to the poor among you. Saying you keep the law, then keep it supremely. Come with me. This was the invitation of Jesus. Verse 22. And at these words, the man's face fell, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. He was grieved. So Jesus has already, you know, he's already challenged him on the last half of the 
of the Ten Commandments. Now we see how this man is guilty before the first half of the Ten Commandments. He has a false god. He has an idol. That's the first commandment. Second commandment. He preeminently worshipped and served this other god. His other god was money. The third commandment. Every time he used God's name in, uh, in, in worship or any other context, he was using it in vain because Jehovah God was not his God, really. Ultimately, you know, when you, when you use God's name, but God is not truly your God, you have some idol in your heart, then you're using His name in vain. There's a lot of religion, Christian, so-called Christian religion going on that is blaspheming God every Sunday, right? Because the people using the name of God and singing praises to Jesus Christ, they don't know Him, they don't love Him, they can't wait till the service is about to be over, right? It's not about God at all. It's about, well, I want to be seen being religious. I want to look good to my friends. And, well, it makes my mom and dad happy if I go to church sometime. Right? Or whatever. But if it's not about Christ, you know, I say this with, with some fear and trepidation, <laughs> but I've always said it ever since I started preaching back in the 80s. Um, you need to be careful about how you use the name of God. Even in this place. You can blaspheme Him in this place. You can use His name in vain in this place. Because He's not really the, the center. He's not really your God. Your money is your God. Or your pleasure is your God. Your power is your God. Your stuff is your God. Whatever. You know? that human beings put in place of God. How did he infringe upon the fourth commandment? Every time he went to the synagogue, he was a hypocrite. He loved his money more than he loved God. Beloved, this is why I hammer this all the time. It's why I beat this drum. Religion is deadly. It is deadly. It takes billions to hell. Religion. And I include in that pseudo-Christianity. You can be very religious outwardly and still be breaking all of God's laws. You can be very religious outwardly and still be alienated from God. You can be very religious outwardly and be on your way to hell as we saw in Matthew chapter 7. So, what are the elements that Jesus has put in front of the man so far? Verse 18, he said, only God is good. Verse 19, he said, man, in front, before the law, you're, you're blown up, right? You, you can't keep the law. Verse 21, he showed man uh, his sin and he, he called him to repentance. Verse 20, Jesus said, he, 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 he invited the man to come and follow him, which is the Lord's privilege to call him into discipleship and submission. All of these elements are barriers to false profession. It's why I use them sometimes. You don't want to, you don't want to, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you don't want to make it so easy for them. I mean, really what you want to do is probe and, and, and make sure what's really happening here. You know, just praying the prayer, it, it, if it's genuine, it's great. If it's not, it's damning. You have someone who's deceived. 
into thinking that they are a Christian when in fact they are not. Man, this guy would have loved to have been a church member, right? He was already a well-respected man of the synagogue. He liked that. But he couldn't love Christ supremely. It's what the text is all about. He was grieved. He loved his money and the security, stability, comfort, ease, esteem, prestige, status, power, and self-sufficiency it afforded him. You know, and by Karen and I were talking about it coming in um, tonight. You guys know this. I don't have the stats at my at at the ready tonight, but most of us are compared to much of the rest of the world. We are extremely wealthy. We are rich people. Most people who live in the West, most people who live in Europe, we are rich. People live on a dollar a week. I get it. Cost of living and all that. I understand. I get that. I'm not stupid. I get that. But beloved, we are blessed. What are you doing with this blessing? Right? What are we doing with this blessing? So as we've been seeing the last couple of weeks, you don't get to come to Jesus on your terms. You don't get to walk in with all your money. You don't get to walk in with loving your family preeminently. You don't get to walk in with with carrying all your stuff. You come by yourself, by faith, in Christ. It's a narrow way. You don't get to pull all your junk in behind you. You don't get to come in with all your religion. You come in by yourself, loving Jesus Christ, placing your faith in Him, That's biblical Christianity. That has always been biblical Christianity. So this guy walks away. He loves his money. You know, the contrast is that great great text about Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was wealthy. And what, what did he do immediately when he was converted? Anybody remember? From joy, he saw, he said, he said, he wasn't even prompted by Jesus. He just said, I'm going to sell half of my stuff and give it away. He did it from joy, right? He did it from joy. And we see in this man's reaction, there is no joy. There is only grief. Now, verses 23 to 27, I'm just going to quickly summarize those. Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to be saved. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What does that mean? Does it sound impossible to you? It's impossible. It cannot happen. It's, what, it's the point Jesus is making. It's impossible. It's as impossible for, for a rich man to be saved than, than for, as a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Verse 26, the disciples were astonished. Then who can be saved? They, they had two false teachings in their mind. One was that if a man was rich, he had the favor of God. Right? The other... Uh, the, the, other false, the other false teaching that they had in their minds was if you gave alms, and a rich man could give more alms, if you gave, if you gave a lot of alms to the poor, then that counted toward uh, your redemption, right? That helped to redeem your soul. Uh, you guys know the, the really bad state of affairs in much of modern Christendom. 
I was saying to Karen, I was doing the study this week, I said, I'm always astonished at the Christians that I talk to who want to be rich. And uh, what did Paul tell Timothy about riches? Anybody remember? It's not good. I'll just read it to you. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Seven. That's just verse 9. Okay? For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I got ten. Beloved, go home tonight and repent if you want to be rich. You are flirting with Satan. Is it wrong for a man to be rich? No. Under the Lordship of Jesus? But man, if that's all you're about, go home and repent. Go home and repent. Why do you want to be rich? Ten reasons for you not to want to be rich. Right here. Right here on this little piece of paper. I've got it. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. I'm always astonished at how these, well, these false prophets, we know that they're false prophets. So, they are astonished. The disciples are astonished. And Jesus says, with men salvation is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Of course, this highlights the truth that salvation is the purview of God. He initiates and He completes the miraculous work of regeneration. This is the point of what Jesus is saying. So, um, about the money thing. We've already talked about it, but I just want to say it again. It's not that you have to give everything you own away to be a Christian, but you would. If you really believed God was calling you to it, you would do it. In fact, you've already, as a Christian, done the transaction in your heart, right? You've already done it. I love Christ supremely. If He calls me to it, I'll do it. I'll happily do it. As Zacchaeus did. Money is merely a means for us to glorify God. Is that how you see your money? It's only a means to glorify God. And the people in your life are supposed to see you glorify God with your money. Your friends and neighbors and family, they need to see you honor God with your finances in the church and also in the world. Just be open-handed, right? We're open-handed and, and, and open-hearted. It's what a Christian looks like. Verse 28, let me read it. We'll finish. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. Peter is saying, uh, he says that uh, we get a little bit different insight over in Matthew. Uh, the text says, We left everything for you. What will there be for us? Uh, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake or for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much. Now, 
And in the present age, now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? You can't outgive me. You can't outgive me. I will multiply it back to you a hundredfold. And what is a hundredfold? 10,000%. You'll never get a deal like that on the earth. Ever. Okay. This should be overflowing every week. Because you, it's like getting in on the ground floor to Google. You understand what I'm saying? And some of you haven't been here before. I apologize. I don't beat this drum. I don't talk about money. We don't even pass the offering plate. I very rarely bring it up. But I'm saying, if you understand what Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, you can't stop me. I want to give. I want to make much of Jesus in my worship. So Jesus says, every good thing is yours. Every good thing is yours. It's yours. The kingdom of God is yours. It's yours. Now, you say, Jim, I don't have it now. Well, that's right. You don't actually possess it now, but you are part of it now. I was listening to John MacArthur preach on this text some time ago, and I love what he said. He said, you know, we've talked about this. Sometimes a man becomes a Christian, a man or woman becomes a Christian, they lose their family. You know, it always happens in Orthodox Jewish families and Muslim families. It even happens um, in nominal Christian families. Some guy gets really born again, and, and the rest of the family, they don't like it. And it's costly. But MacArthur says... We get the family of God, right? We have a real family then. A real family who loves us. And we can talk about deep things. It's not just blood. It's God, right? It's not just blood. It's God. So Jesus says, I give you every good thing that matters. And I'm going to end with John Piper. Um, here. This is John Piper's comment on this text. Famous American preacher. Christians are not heroes who can boast in great sacrifice for God. They are merely Christian hedonists. They have discovered that there is a hundred times more joy and satisfaction in a life devoted to Christ than a life devoted to frivolous comforts, pleasures, and worldly advancements. Alright, one more Piper quote, and I'm done. But I love this quote from John Piper about what real faith looks like. Listen to him. Real faith is utterly in love with God. Real faith loves God more than job, more than money, more than dream houses, more than retirement. Real faith loves God more than family. Real faith loves God more than life. Real faith says whether God handles me tenderly or gives me over to torture. Jesus throws the persecution into verse 30. Why does He throw it in there? Because it's real. It happens. John, is it 15? It happens. They hate me, they hate you. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Jesus is just being honest with us. It's part of counting the cost, right? Real faith says whether God handles me tenderly or gives me over to torture, I love Him. He is my treasure. Jesus Christ is my treasure. He is my treasure. So, in the last three weeks, we've seen that 
Genuine Christianity is sold out, narrow way, fruit-bearing, supreme love, discipleship. That's what it is. That's what it is. And that's what I want for you. That's why I push you around when you come in here. I want this for you. I don't want you to settle for anything less than walking with God. It's what I want for you more than I can express. Don't be deceived. Don't settle for religion. Go with Jesus. Let's pray together.